0: difficult to keep the line between
1: the past and the present you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being we may be through with the past but the past is not through with us
0: welcome to the next picture show a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release i'm tasha robinson here with our long-standing superhero team up
1: Keith phipps scott tobias
0: and genevieve koski Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we've got two groups of superheroes fighting to save huge numbers of lives while pursuing their own tiny personal plot arcs. Scott, do we have a Hulk? What?
1: No. Uh, Where will we even get one of those?
0: Ugh, damn it. I was really hoping I'd get to do the line. Uh, Do we at least have a quick summary of the two films we're covering this week?
1: That I can do. Avengers Infinity War, directed by brothers Anthony and Joe Russo, just broke a whole slew of box office records, including making a billion dollars at the box office faster than any previous film. It's the culmination of a decade of build-up for Marvel Studios, with characters from 18 previous Marvel Cinematic Universe films teaming up to fight Thanos, a powerful alien out to literally kill half the universe. The team-up at X2, Marvel's X-Men movie from 2003, is much smaller. But like Infinity War, it does feature disparate groups, in this case, Professor X's X-Men, his frenemy Magneto and Magneto loyalist Mystique, joining forces to stop a scheming army colonel who's out to kill every mutant on Earth. It's two different Marvel movies about villains' mad genocidal plans and heroes' desperate bids to stop them. Both films use some of the same tricks to bring four-color heroes to a live-action setting, and both films are openly middle chapters of ongoing stories, continuing plot lines for previous films, and lining up pins for the next film in the series.
0: In this week's first episode, we'll look at X2, consider where Marvel was 15 years ago, and think about how Marvel has gone about building one giant cinematic universe when the rights to some of its most popular characters are in the uncooperating hands of different studios. And in the second half of the episode, coming on Thursday, we'll bring in Avengers Infinity War and consider how the last 10 years of Marvel films have led up to a moment where fans are just happy to see their favorite characters sniping each other before dying tragically.
1: Tasha, Tasha, spoiler alert!
0: My bad. Uh, did one of us hang on to that time gem so we can rewind and erase that bit before anybody hears it?
1: Doesn't it ever wake you in the middle of the night? The feeling that someday they
2: will pass that foolish law and come for you and your children, take you all away? Does indeed. I feel a great swell of pity for the poor soul who comes to that school looking for trouble.
0: What's happened to you? Don't you remember? You should have killed me when you had the chance. You're gonna kill him, Bobby. No, no. Welcome, Professor. You haven't told him about his past. Who is he? I can't remember. Sometimes anger can help you survive. The war has begun. Looking at X2 today, with its somewhat clumsy special effects and equally clumsy character interactions, it's hard to believe there was ever a point where it was considered one of the greatest comic book stories ever put on film. The the state-of-the-art back in 2003 was still pretty clumsy, and for every comparative success like Richard Donner's strange, charming 1978 take on Superman or Tim Burton's openly embraced 1989 take on Batman, there were a good half-dozen disasters like Batman and Robin or Superman IV The Quest for Peace or weird offshoots like The Shadow, The Phantom, The Mask, The Crow, The Spirit, and The Punisher. In the year 2000, Brian Singer's X-Men helped change the language of these films. It had a little more of the self-aware banter and fan candy that would come to typify Marvel Studios' movies over the decades to come. Some of it was awkward, especially Halle Berry as Storm, explaining to a villain named Toad what happens when Toads get struck by lightning, a line left over from a Joss Whedon version of the script and which he claims Berry totally misread. But X-Men was one of the few superhero movies of its era that was made by someone who actually seemed to be a fan of the comics and the characters. And it was one of the few that put superheroes on the screen without swinging them entirely into grim, anti-hero darkness or turning them into camp. And more than that, it was one of the very few superhero movies of its era to focus on a team instead of a lone hero. Superman, Batman, and all those masks and shadows and crows I listed above are pretty much defined by being alone, by being different from everyone around them and having to navigate what that means. The X-Men, on the other hand, were a fully-fledged team who all had something in common. They were mutants, which gave them powers and gave them common cause against a world that misunderstood and feared them. The mutant gene has been used to metaphorically address a lot of things in the comics, from HIV-positive status, to being a gay teenager, to being immigrants or homeless, or any other marginalized group that society misunderstands and rejects. But while being isolated from the rest of the world gives the X-Men that coveted lonely wolf hero status, that high and lonely destiny feeling that can feel like a pretty appealing fantasy to the introverted adolescent reader that superhero comics tend to target, it also pulls them all together. It gives them an enemy in the outside world, and it gives them friends and allies. It gives them, in short, an automatic family. X-Men was enough of a box office hit to let Singer expand his vision in 2003's X2, and with the primary characters already established and the world built, he could launch right into the action. The film opens with a sequence that's still exciting today, as the mutant Nightcrawler, played by Alan Cumming, bursts into the White House, uses his teleporting powers and combat abilities to take down the president's entire Secret Service contingent, and then nearly stabs the president. Colonel William Stryker, played by Brian Cox, uses the incident as an excuse to round up mutant kids from Professor Xavier's School for Gifted Youngsters. And at the same time, he captures Professor Xavier and psychically brainwashes him. The plan is to use Xavier's supercomputer Cerebro to wipe out all mutants. Xavier's adult students, the X-Men, have to figure out what's going on, rescue Xavier, and stop Stryker, which involves cooperating with Xavier's old friend and their team's greatest nemesis, Magneto. Meanwhile, there are a lot of smaller plot arcs in play, including a personal quest into the past, a love triangle, a doomed romance, a villain's coming-of-age story, a grotesquely warped father-son relationship, and more. X2 has a lot on its plate, and like the Disney-produced Marvel movies that followed it, it only really works for viewers who have developed a personal rooting interest in these characters, and who care about what they think and feel outside of the big save-the-world battles they get up to. But in that sense, Singer's X-Men films are much more ground zero for the Marvel Cinematic Universe model than any superhero film that came before them, because they draw on the endlessly complicated comics history that built these characters, and they assume that the audience does care. X2 doesn't radically rewrite Storm, Wolverine, Jean Grey, Cyclops, and the rest to fit the limits of a two-hour movie. It tells the story like it's just a chapter in a larger, possibly eternal unfolding, a long series of stories that aren't designed to resolve so much as they're designed to iterate, to keep unfolding endlessly, and keep hooking viewers in. So, uh, when did you first know you were a... A mutant? Um, But you cut that out.
3: You have to understand, we thought Bobby was going to a school for the gifted.
0: Bobby is the gifted.
3: We know that. We just didn't realize We
0: still a- love you, Bobby. It's
2: just this mutant problem is a little...
3: What mutant problem?
0: Complicated. What exactly are you, Professor F, Mr.
3: Logan? Art.
0: Well, you should see what Bobby can do.
4: That males are the ones who carry the mutant gene and pass it on, so it's his fault.
0: All right, so we've seen a lot of superhero movies since X2 came out. Given all of the history that's gone by with with heroes since then, how did X2 treat you guys this time around? It was kind of quaint
2: <laughs> um, but I mean it's as you say in the in the keynote that opening Nightcrawler sequence I think still works really well even if you can sort of see the 2003-ness of some of the uh, special effects but even though it is like obviously operating plot wise on a massive worldwide scale it still feels like a much smaller story than, than we've been trained <laughs> to, to know with uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies which have just like gotten exponential bigger in terms of both stakes and world building. So like the fact that the action is confined mostly to Alkali Lake and to this one setting, is fairly isolated setting, That that's another thing that sort of stands out compared to a lot of current superhero movies is that it, they are pretty much away from humanity and urban centers for most of this movie. Yeah, it just felt different while still feeling obviously very familiar. This is a movie I've seen so many times, but I haven't watched probably in the last like 10 years, probably since Iron Man and since the, uh, the Marvel movies just sort of changed the, the paradigm for this kind of movie.
3: I did a lot. I mean, it, I think it's really entertaining and I'm very fond of these first couple of X men movies. And, and, I've kind of lost track of where they've gone since then, but it's gotten so. Except for Logan, which which uh, which I like yeah. a lot. But I like these versions of the characters. I Think it's very cleanly directed. The action is, uh, you know, not to get ahead of ourselves in comparison. But I think it's <laughs> it's uh, very kind of classically filmed from upstanding citizen Brian Singer. Who's, <laughs> <laughs> <a good> <laughs> oh,
0: you're gonna go there? Yeah,
3: may as well get it out of the way. But uh, it made me wish he wasn't a creep, but also kind of wish he'd stuck around for the third movie, which I think could have been a nice progression for this, and it could have been a really good trilogy. I think maybe. These films, I think they're fondly remembered already, but I think if the third installment hadn't been such a dud in so many different ways, I think these would be a little more revered than they are. It was
1: a Brett Ratner film, Upstanding we, Citizen. We, Brett we, Ratner. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's just,
3: well, nothing but creeps can direct Yeah, know. Movies, um,
1: You know. I like this film. I think it holds up quite well. I, I don't necessarily even see that many of the effects being this huge I, I've stayed silent,
3: them. but I, I, I never know what you're talking about when people say that. But uh, oh, <laughs> seriously, what are the effects of being dated, and not didn't, didn't say they were dated.
0: No, but oh. I, I kind of did. I just didn't use the word dated. I, we I know. can get into that. You
1: know let's. let's... I well, I just I didn't. I mean, I didn't think they were appreciably worse than what we were experiencing in the new oh, film. Oh wow! But,
0: wait, wait. You are Scott. Motion smoothing is the devil to buy. No, it's right? not. I
1: mean, it's not. They're not great, but um, just computer effects generally. I don't. I, I don't cut into these computer effects. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but I, I did appreciate that this was a big story with a lot of characters that was cleanly told. I mean, that's no small thing as we will perhaps see later on. To have these different camps and to bring them together for this common cause, and for it to be delivered as cleanly and successfully and entertainingly as this is—I mean, that's that's no small feat. And uh, I think the film, you know, by and large, pulls it off. You know, if if we're really going to get down into things, though, like character development and you know subplots, and that's when maybe the film falls a little bit short here and there. But I think the overall vision of the film is pretty strong, and I I think it holds up quite well.
0: Yeah, I feel like this has a lot more moving pieces than we were used to seeing in a film like Superman or Batman that has one hero to contend with. Mm-hmm. There's an, there's some effort put in here to give a lot of different people at least some semblance of either a small story arc or at least enough identification that people can tell that these are people who care, people who've read the comics and who have like personal visions of these characters can tell that they're the same characters like if you're just looking at this as a single movie story there's really no point to the whole plot line about rogue can't touch boys but she wants to have a boyfriend Mm -hmm. uh but you know within this film it's part of both identifying these characters as the characters that comics fans are familiar with and about kind of giving them enough personality space to sort of breathe a little so we care about them individually and i think that's that's a really hard road to hoe. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think that yeah, it I personally I'm going to spoil a little here when I say I really liked Infinity War, but it took them 18 films to set up those characters to the degree that they all have individual personalities. Brian Singer was like, we've got one film down. Let's just straight up go for it mm-hmm. with all these little side stories. I don't think all of them work. There's one in particular that just really makes me roll my eyes. But overall, uh, I think the action of this is generally pretty exciting. And these are characters that, in some cases, I really love. And I think the film mostly does right by them.
3: I think in some ways, there's some... Instances like, where it improves on it like I don't think Mystique never really stood out for me as an interesting character in the comics but I, I think she's one of the most interesting characters in these movies and nicely played by Rebecca Romaine Stamos uh, and then, you know it's, St- it's, with her yep is Stamos is yeah, it's yeah. oh yeah still Stamos still Stamos, Stamos. Still yeah. Stamos in it. <laughs> mm-hmm. acting through that makeup while basically being nude on set can't have been uh, uh, the easiest thing for her so cheers
0: yeah there are a couple of points where uh, again I'm not sure I, I agree with the uh, singer's camera placement for instance uh, there's 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 a sequence that takes place around a a fire where Magneto is going into some detail about things that are very important to the characters. And the framing is basically his head and her breasts, Uh, (laughs) his head and her breasts kind of looming over his head and it's really distracting. I don't know. I would have liked a, maybe a little more of her philosophy and a little less of her boobs, mm-hmm. but I'm not the 14-year-old boy that, you know, uh, superhero comics
3: are most directly aimed I, at. I, I think there's a little more pandering to that audience in this film than, than there are in the later Marvel films, too.
0: Agreed but is that a problem I guess it like there are shots where I find it distracting mm-hmm. but for the most of the thrust of the film this doesn't feel like a film that's talking down to its audience no too much. no, that's... I mean I, I don't know I, I know Keith is a comics fan I know I'm sitting here in uh, Genevieve Koski's apartment which <laughs> is full up to the brim of comic books uh, Scott <laughs> do you have like feelings about these characters apart from the films
1: nope <laughs> uh, no I was I was uh, denied any uh, comic books as a child
3: i always like that i can talk x-men with your wife who was a comic who was yeah, an X-Men yeah, fan yeah, for a yeah. certain, my wife certain can area. talk
1: about comics but i am very much outside this whole two-part podcast is uh, i'm Definitely the amateur here, as far as uh,
2: the, the last pairing into. was for you. The last pairing, uh, the, uh, the writer and close
1: up, that was the Scott Tobias pairing. That was a good pairing for me. But uh, but the so comic you're... books. Well, fortunately, as a you know as a freelancer, I can uh, I don't have to like you know it's good to leave films like that on the table. The uh, comic book films that no one is writing about uh, <laughs> to, 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 to not be able to contribute to that is a good idea. But uh, in any case, yeah. So I, I come at it just understanding you know just from the films. I don't you know I didn't know really much of anything about x-men until i saw not even
2: the, the cartoon the, series no
3: yeah. i was a little old for yeah. that. until we were in college i think so yeah i wouldn't yeah. watch it in college
0: i mean there have been a lot i watched
3: of in college a little bit
0: but, you know. <laughs> there was no there was one on in the 80s that i watched as a kid i
3: don't think so there was a pilot that never aired but it wasn't an x-men series
0: mm. I, I mean, you, there was.
3: I, I think you're. I think you might be Shazamming.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I may have watched watch Saturday morning cartoons later than anybody yeah. should actually admit to. So, maybe watch we're the Laugh
3: Olympics.
1: Is that is that a, is
3: that? A... <laughs> it's not it's not canon, but I think they. they you know, the, there is some crossover. <sighs> you know, so Scott,
0: you uh, yes. you call yourself an amateur. I'm going to call you a litmus test.
3: Okay,
0: having not had like an emotional. Oh, that that's more like the Nightcrawler from the comics that like no. I wanted to see on the screen, like any of that. So how do all of these this film takes time to point out that for instance like storm has a rough background and doesn't have a lot of faith in people Mm -hmm. that uh nightcrawler like has religious faith and leans on it heavily that rogue is upset about her romantic prospects that pyro doesn't quite know what to do with himself and, and on and on like all of these little character beats does that read for you as like character depth in a movie that would otherwise just be action or is it just clutter
1: yeah you know that's an interesting point because uh i think maybe if you have had this background with the comics, that is uh, drawing out a rich history that you already know. So, yeah, in that sense, everything seems rather thin. You know, if I were to be generous, I would say, well, that's it's economical, not thin, and you're, you're getting you're getting a taste of these characters. I mean, there's obviously a lot of them on the screen, so you, you have to be very minimal about how far, you can, how deep you can go into it. Um, my reaction to these characters individually and uh, these relationships really had to do with just a case by case basis. I mean, uh, characters like professor uh, Xavier and Magneto and, and in in smaller roles, uh, mystique and, and nightcrawler. I mean, these were pretty resonant characters for me just on the basis of watching this film, but all the stuff with Jean gray and Scott, I mean, I, (laughs) wow. Couldn't I care at all about what was happening with those two? Um, so it's your mileage may vary, I guess on that. Uh, well, I,
2: I didn't rewatch the first X Men for this, but like the Jean Grey, Scott, Cyclops, and uh, Logan love triangle, as as you've alluded to, Tasha is like pretty weak sauce in this movie. But like I seem to recall it being like. Fairly heavily established and and touched on in the first X Men movie. And, like, so in that context, this feels like it's just functioning as a sequel. Like, it's depending on our knowledge and feelings of that relationship that we carried over from a movie that at this point was, you know, less than two years old and and, you know, is presumably still fresh in our minds. So I think that's one very specific way that this film is functioning as a sequel more than a standalone film. I think that that actually applies to Rogue in this movie too. Like she was a pretty big part of the first X Men and she's in X two a lot, but she doesn't have a whole lot of lines she has a lot of face time but not a lot of dialogue you know she's just kind of there for a lot of this movie so i think it's just like carrying over her arc from the first x-men without necessarily adding a lot to it here
3: I don't remember the love triangle being that great in the first movie either. If I'm Remembering correctly, it is uh, Wolverine kind of attempting to crash an established relationship, and the, any sort of attraction between he and, and Jean Grey being pretty min- minimal. I think it's actually a testament to how good Hugh Jackman is that mm-hmm. that Wolverine, you know, is such a strong character in these films. Because if that's his main business, and in, in this one, and that's kind of is kind of his main character arc in this, it's it's pretty weak stuff. It's just not you well. Know,
2: his main character arc is in this is more with Stryker and finding out his background and everything, you know? And
0: and really, like, coming to terms with the fact that his present is more important than his past, Mm -hmm. that he has to choose his friends and their survival over finding out all of the things
3: that he wants to know. There's still a lot of Jean Grey business in there It doesn't really work. It's it's really bad.
0: I also didn't revisit X-Men, so I I couldn't speak to that. But seen in isolation here. And, you know, I didn't ever love that arc in the comics Mostly because I always thought Jean Grey was just the most boring character uh, mm. imaginable. Like, she's, she's sort of a cut-rate Professor X, except when she's a telekinetic sometimes, except then she's Phoenix, and it's like, there are all of these different sort of bits of her. But until the Phoenix thing, it never really felt like anybody cared that much about making her a distinct character. She was there for the reason so many female heroes were around in the 60s, to do the Sue Storm thing of every boy that meets them falls for them, and then it causes tension. But, like, in, in the cinematic version it's literally just will you please go away i have a boyfriend i'm into him i'm not into you and he's like no if i pin you down and kiss you you'll change your mind <laughs> it's like you're really asking for a psychic lobotomy here
2: logan how much of that do we think is famka jansen's performance because uh, i mean i don't know i don't i don't think she's very good as jean gray like i mean the i don't think she's uh,
3: bad I don't something she brings a lot to it
2: yeah like like honestly with the exception of hugh jackman and Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen like the performances in these first three X-Men movies are not particularly strong to me like I like
3: Paquin yeah
2: I, not not so much here. No, I don't think I do. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> well, again, to be fair, she's not given a whole lot to do. Yeah. we're just talking yeah.
1: about the ex people here. We're not talking about Brian Cox. Oh right? no,
2: oh Brian he, Cox is terrific, of course. Yes, I mean the actors who are throughout this trilogy. Yeah, you know,
3: one of my favorite small performances in this is is in terms of screen time, uh, but is uh, Bruce Davidson as mystique posing as his character sure. <laughs> the whole like eric <laughs> you just, the way he, he channels that character so so uh so well
0: yeah one of the really fun things about like superhero slash fantasy slash magical realism whatever films uh in, in tv shows especially tv shows if you've got superhero stuff going on eventually you're gonna have a body swap mm-hmm. and it's always fun to watch actors try to portray other actors within their own bodies it's just fun times man. peace off that's my favorite one. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. Did somebody get uh, get their face taken off in that movie?
1: Uh, okay, no one can see me making the face off uh, uh, hand mo- motion.
0: The sound effect was very
1: evocative. Um, one thing I will say in this film's favor watching it today is that, uh, of course, the, the X-Men metaphor is just so you can just apply it to anything Mm -hmm. and and so you can watch it today and just see it as a pretty solid immigration metaphor and i'm sure if you when you watch it 2003 maybe um, you saw it as a metaphor for something else uh the other thing that really struck me here though was the character of colonel Stryker and how hawks i guess you would say use small incidents as a justification for action that they were already wanting to take Mm -hmm. i mean you can really see that happening now in our in our government you can, you can see how one incident would lead to a dramatic action that is way way over the top and it that felt quite resonant to me and really like something that would happen uh, it, it would be a plausible extreme option for the government to take in this situation and in and, and something that i think a dynamic that we see play out you know, often in in real life. So that that part of the film really got to me this time.
0: I can see that. But X2 is in part uh, based on a comic called God Loves, Man Kills, which was, I think, much more dark and specific and resonant about mutants essentially being HIV-positive characters Mm -hmm. uh, in a world where people didn't understand AIDS and were afraid of it and thought that maybe if we rounded them all up and sent them somewhere, we'd be better off, you know? And here I just – I don't feel anything like that sense of specificity. I feel like I agree with you that there's sort of a, a general idea here about uh, hawks and you know misuse of the military and manipulation of the government. But it just doesn't seem – I don't know it just it doesn't have that resonance. It, it for me. might
3: have had that resonance more in 2003 though, which was the That's year true. We, when you know the Iraq war started. Mm. Uh, and and you know it's definitely sort of it, it was definitely a time when when that was uh, you know in the air as some people were afraid of and justifiably so.
1: Yeah, a to me, the Iraq war is much more an example of cooking things up a little bit to start uh, a war and you know, to have a, this kind of overreaction. But I think I think that part of it works for me. I mean, I, I'm going to separate the two. I'm going to separate the one category, which is who do the mutants represent, uh, which you're right, maybe does lack a certain specificity. And then in the other corner, uh, I would feel much more strongly in support of Stryker and the way that his initiative is triggered by the opening event of the film, which to me is, again, I think, resonant to the way government tends to, can can respond or ideologues can respond uh, to to situations like that, to take one isolated incident and then seize upon it in order to further an agenda.
2: But Stryker orchestrated the Nightcrawler attack like that was his doing he used the serum because the, we saw the little uh, right. dot. Yeah, on that, that, on that
3: sure. Snake. But
0: I mean, he sets it up because he knows he's going to be able to pivot it, right? I think right.
3: the central point is still there, yeah, yeah, but it was, then it goes into sort of a, a false flag operation, is what. Right. Right. And suddenly we're, speaking, we're, speaking we're slowly edging into an Alex Jones podcast. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. No. I mean, yeah. I mean, like the sentiment uh, about Stryker is still there. I just want to clarify on a on a plot. Yeah. No, bubble, you're, you're right. You know, I was, the, the, the opening sequence was part of Stryker's
0: plan. Jennifer, do you have any thoughts on the kind of the larger symbolism of the X-Men here. The one sort of line that I
2: want to highlight in the film in terms of this idea of like what mutants represent is uh, when uh, the dialogue between uh, Mystique and Nightcrawler, when he's asking her like, you know, you can look like anyone, why not stay in disguise all the time? And she says, because we shouldn't have to. So there's just sort of a undercurrent of, you know, not having to like hide or you know what makes you different in 2003 there's a lot you could apply that to whether your religion or your sexuality or you know it's a very malleable metaphor i like especially how mystique like fits into that metaphor well
0: that's a really interesting read on a scenelet an exchange that always really bugged me because in the comics mystique is nightcrawler's mother and Mm. he doesn't know it and when they meet up the fact that they're both the same color of blue uh and they've both had this like strange like mutant existence it just it seems like they should have more to say to each other somehow and what you're saying all blue people are related Yes. And I, and I think that they all know each other, too. It's not, it, they're not all blue people. I mean, we get, we get speaking of uh, little Easter eggs, we get a moment with uh, Hank McCoy mm-hmm. on the TV, like, pre-being blue. And, uh, like, he's a different shade of blue from them. Like, they're the exact same color of blue, and they're both weirdly <laughs> knobbly in this uh, version of the film. Like, when they when they look at each other and be like, eh, knobbly uh, Royal Pantone 347, huh? <laughs> but my point being that just that exchange between them always had the feeling to me of like stuff that we would later see in like Joss Whedon's take on Justice League, where he shoehorned in extra scenes that had people actually talking to each other in ways they Mm -hmm. didn't in the original script or the original action. And those scenes are sometimes really resonant, but they also feel super cheap because it's literally two people talking in a a smoky graveyard with no background (laughs) whatsoever. And it feels like a reshoot. And I get the same feeling here. I feel like somebody along the line was like, Brian, are they not going to speak to each other at all? And he's like, "Fine, yeah, here's a moment."
3: Emotions are the cheapest special effect. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah, I would say just because of the amount of effort that it takes to put both of them into that makeup, I, I would say no scenes involving them are probably like after
0: the fact pickup shots. But... No, but I feel like they could be during the fact pickup shots. Yeah. I feel like we just we get so much more of Mystique, uh, like in the Jennifer Lawrence Mystique days, and so much more of her belief system that kind of reducing. The one line here kind of bugged me. Mm.
2: But it's still there, you know. And in 2000, I mean, I remember it making an impression the first time I saw it. I I just remember Mystique in general making an impression, you know. I mean, obviously, she gets more backstory in the Jennifer Lawrence version of the character because that's a, you know, a backstory and origin story, and this is not that.
1: How big a character is she in the comics? I think you kind of have a sense of who the marquee players are your Logans and your Professor. X's in your Magneto's like how, how big you know is she proportionally where she is in the, the comics or is she over is she emphasized more in these films than she is in the series
0: you know my X-Men knowledge is so dated and so much of the comics universe has been completely overshadowed mm-hmm. and overwritten because of what's going on in the films mm. so I mean today I don't know back then I always thought of her as kind of a, a minor villain
3: yeah. yeah she comes and goes she had her own series for brief time. In the early 2000s but I think she kind of waxes and wanes in terms of her prominence
0: I mean I feel like the films really drew her out in part because a shape changer who can be any actor is a really really useful plot mm-hmm. convenience mm-hmm. and it's also just a really fun thing to play with narratively um, leaving that aside for a minute, one of the problems that people have endlessly been writing about with superhero films is the villain problem you know there's there's so many superhero movies where the villain is some generic big bad, often an alien or a robot who has a magic hobajuob and wants to destroy the world for really thinly expressed reasons and there's a little bit of that going on here with Stryker. We understand that his Animus against mutants is personal because of his son, mm-hmm. which I think is an interesting twist. What do you make of him as a villain? Like even even if you love Brian Cox's performance, like is he well written here? Is this effective for you? What did you think of him in the film? I mean, what's I guess interesting about
2: him as a villain is his plan is totally dependent on the things that he wants to destroy. <laughs> he needs a mutant to make the serum, he needs mutants to manipulate to you know, kill all the mutants. Like, I mean, he's really a, a puppet master. He doesn't really have power of his own beyond his plan. Like, his plan is his power. Like, I think that makes him a more interesting villain than the villains that we've gotten used to. That are, we're just told are each is more and more powerful than the last. And they have a more powerful hooberjube. You know, like so, like the last Thor movie. Like, he was literally battling death. You know, like they be- just become these bigger, more evil, more abstract entities and Stryker is like his plan his evil his villainness is so intertwined with the targets of his plan that i think it it's interesting by default
3: i'm looking forward to avengers Hube-fube War, <laughs> war which, whichever um i, I like striker i think it's a you know good performance from from cox and i think they could have done this gone a little further with this but i think the best most effective super villains are the ones where you can Kind of see their point of view. It's like, oh, maybe he does have a point here. These mutants, you know, there's certain there's some mutants that are not going to care about humanity at all, and they they might. Uh, there's the
2: bad ones, like Pyro. Yeah, exactly.
3: <laughs> oh. oh,
2: he's such a dreamy bad boy. Such,
3: such a bad boy. Uh, yeah. He's I, a terrible
0: character. I'm kidding.
3: Well. <laughs> You know, if they are the next step in evolution, then what does that mean for those of us that aren't? You know, I, I, you can kind of see his point of view.
0: Yeah, I think one of the things that's interested me most in the MCU is the ongoing thread of we spend so much time with the heroes and we were so immersed in their point of view that the fact that Tony Stark is like a super vigilante that just literally nobody can do anything about. You know, he's beyond the government, he's beyond any kind of control, and he does horrible things that he doesn't mean to do. as a result, like the MCU has played with that idea a lot over and over. Here, I don't feel like it's ever expressly stated and I wonder if not for the MCU movies, if I would have as strong of a feeling here of oh, these guys are dangerous, and they're just doing whatever they want to do, and it's a good thing that they're on our side, because they're kind of terrible. And, you know, at the very end, they make that appeal to the president, and it's it's very touching and very emotional, but you kind of remember at every moment that Professor X is a psychic so yeah. powerful that he can just shut down the entire White House, if he feels like it, to make an entrance. Yeah, I mean,
2: that, that final, like, I guess, is it the final scene in the, in the White it's House? It's not the final,
0: oh, in the White House, yes. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Like, it's also like really threatening, you know? Oh, yeah. you know, like like the the words are nice, but the action is very ominous.
1: Well, if you, I guess if you're looking for support, too, for Stryker's agenda, that support exists in the form of Magneto, doesn't it? I mean, he's just going to take the same machine and turn mm-hmm. it against mankind and he's going to be able to pull that off rather easily. So uh, so I think you can see that as a threat and, and understand Stryker's point of view as Keith pointed out which, which definitely helps make him a good villain and I think and Brian Cox is just a very interesting actor <laughs> you know it's, it's a little it's a lively performance it's not it's an, a little
2: foghorn leghorn at times yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a lot it's a lot
1: of performance but um, but it's good I mean so making a good villain is difficult having a superhero team-up movie that is coherent and well told that's also difficult this is fall foreshadowing <laughs>
3: but but you know this is this, is in this next in
1: spoilers, the next issue spoilers
0: Scott uh,
1: so but yeah so, so I, I give it I give the film a lot of credit for its villain for sure
0: Thank <laughs> you. We haven't really talked about uh, Magneto as both a villain and, and here a largely sympathetic character until he just suddenly casually tries to murder every human being on Earth at the end of the film. Not to mention abandoning his old friend to uh, you know some, some pretty horrible people. <laughs> the Ian McKellen uh, Patrick Stewart bromance mm-hmm. is just a, a beautiful thing uh, mm-hmm. that I enjoy very, very much. But what do you think about uh, his character here?
1: I love it. I, th- I think the breakout sequences is this kind of that mm-hmm. other than too much the night, iron in the blood other than Nightcrawler <laughs> other than Nightcrawler maybe maybe including the Nightcrawler thing it's my favorite sequence in the whole movie of him breaking
3: out of that it's really nicely set up mm-hmm. and I love that set I love the all plastic prison mm-hmm. it's, just a, it's just an interesting idea well realized definitely
0: and it. I think the movie does a really good job of setting up the kind of the emotional conflict between you know this guy's dangerous and the film treats him uh, in that prison treats him like Hannibal Lecter mm-hmm. there is a feeling of he he maybe
3: shouldn't get out and
0: there's also a pretty strong feeling of satisfaction when he does, kind of like when Hannibal Lecter escapes, because you know stuff's going to go down.
3: And um, he's been mistreated, too. I mean, he, we see him being abused mm-hmm. uh, pretty pretty badly.
0: Yeah, that said, like, the
2: jump immediately to kill all humans, like, I guess feels a little abrupt, but I, I don't know. Maybe that's in keeping with the Magneto character from the comics. I don't re- recall him having, like, a vendetta against, like, All humans, just like anti-mutant humans, like, you know, he seems to be focused more on mutant liberation than...
0: Mutant dominance. Yeah,
2: mutant dominance. So I, I guess that equates to kill all humans but i mean if you kill them all there's no one
0: to dominate so there is that well i mean he does expressly say to pyro here you are god among insects yeah Um, you can't feel bad about smushing insects
1: it's like it's a nuclear-like escalation happening here too i mean you know there's an existential threat that Magneto is perhaps responding to right. That's uh, true. And, and doing it proportionally by which is you know um, which is to kill all humans.
0: I also I feel like he's maybe acting a little out of character here, just because the opportunity is so delicious. You know the the taking his weapon out of his hand and stabbing him with it uh, effect is so strong, and it's so easy for him. Like yeah. he's basically involves a few whispered words, and he could have every, everything he ever wanted.
3: It's kind of a, well, why not situation, yeah. as long as I'm here. You know, when all you've
0: got is a hammer that's a psychic brain powerful enough to kill every human on the planet, everything looks like a nail.
3: Yeah.
0: <laughs> so Fox, with Fox having been bought out by Disney, there's been a lot of thought about how the X-Men, now the X-Men are back in like Disney Marvel's hands, how they're going to be integrated into the MCU. Do you guys want to see them integrated into the MCU? Do, do you have thoughts about... Well, well, we definitely need more characters in the MCU, yeah.
2: so thank God we finally have a way to do it.
3: I kind of like them in their own universe. It never really made sense to me that that most heroes were embraced, but mutants were shunned. I mean, there's there's logic for it within the comics, but you know, it doesn't really quite make that much sense. But you know, if they did do that, I kind of want them to start over. I, I wouldn't necessarily want you know these. Versions of the characters in the MCU because they feel like it's tonally it's its own thing. Uh, it's got its own continuity. It seems it would be very strange. Uh, maybe like a big, like a big crossover movie, like three hours long, Scott, <laughs> which, where where all the characters had their own moment. But uh, what will
1: be exciting when 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 Pyro and Scarlet Witch get together. Like what's going to happen there? <laughs> well, they'll, they'll
0: have a whole ninety second scene to themselves where they get to find out how the two of them interact. Scarlet Witch
2: is a mutant, right?
0: Like she's like, uh oh she's just a new in the but they had to rewrite her to yeah, not, be, right, mean, yeah, semi, not a, be a mutant. Semi not be a mutant because then she would have fallen under Fox's uh, bailiwick. Right. Uh. Uh, the Some of the gymnastics that these films have been doing or specifically that Marvel Comics has been doing to keep rights out of Fox's hands has just been really amusing to me. <laughs>
4: oh, God.
0: I, I'm with you, Keith. I would kind of like to see these characters rebooted. I love Nightcrawler as a character. He's, he's my favorite mutant. He's my favorite X-Men and I don't think the films have Ever fully done him justice?
3: I like Alan Cumming. I would like to have seen another film where he kind of brings out the more playful side of yeah, Nightcrawler because yep. like, he he could have played that. I mean, Cumming definitely has all those those chops, uh, but we don't really get that here.
0: Yeah, we've seen multiple cinematic versions of him, and it's always the the distressed and downtrodden and and stressed out and miserable version of mm-hmm. Nightcrawler. Like, I'm ready to see the Swashbuckler.
3: Yeah, the one who's like really into Errol Flynn movies. Yeah, know? the
0: <laughs> one who's dare we say fun
1: i think i think logan brought the whole thing to a nice conclusion and we don't need to see any of, <laughs> any of these films ever again
0: just the the implication there that everybody has died except uh just
1: no i mean it just it felt like a, a nice cap to the whole genre of superhero movies
3: you know what 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 gets me scott i was looking this up you know the the parody film superhero movie which I thought was a fiber The the, the No, It sure isn't. It's not, but that came out, you know, these things usually come out after things have peaked, right? I mean, like things are starting to run the course. They came out in 2008, the same year (laughs) as iron man. (laughs) (laughs) So that's easier to forget. There was, we had a lot of these before the first MCU movie even came out. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, they uh, probably like Scott. They thought the superhero movies were over and that they were putting a nice little cap on it. Well, speaking of putting a nice little cap on everything, we should probably wrap this up before we end up spending as much time here as Scott, spent being uh, unhappy in the infinity war theater. Um, <laughs> we'll be right back with feedback. Now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else they want to talk about in the world of film. We haven't heard much from listeners on our pair-up of Close Up and The Rider, but we did get a rare call-in letter dating back to our Ready Player One and Tron episodes. Genevieve, if you want to play that for us,
4: sure. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Anthony. I'm calling in with some thoughts on Tron and Ready Player One. When I was in high school, a friend of, a friend of mine and I, we loved Tron because it just seemed like such a great, like intriguing world to live in there were so many possibilities that the movie doesn't explain that we could discuss and explore. You guys kind of get into this in the episode, theorizing about whether or not users have a mental connection with their programs, other things like that. There's just so much that isn't on screen that you can really dig into and discuss. It's almost more fun movie to think about and talk about than it is to watch because it it really is pretty slow. I think Ready Player One has the opposite problem where it's a fun movie to Watch, but it's not fun to think about because there's nothing that isn't on screen. Right? You, you see the DeLorean, that's not intriguing. You've seen that movie. Or same thing for the Iron Giant or the Overlook Hotel or anything else that comes up. There's, there's nothing to latch onto because being in the Oasis is just like watching movies that you've already seen before. And that's why I think Tron will have, like, I don't think that Ready Player One will have the kind of shelf like Tron does because there's just nothing to latch onto. I would love to hear your thoughts on this.
0: Well, I mean, personally, I think that Tron is maybe more of... It's it's difficult to navigate, is this more fun to watch or talk about? Because we wouldn't talk about it if we didn't think it was fun to watch. But we also wouldn't talk about it if we didn't think it was fun to talk about. So I really enjoyed revisiting Tron, personally. I didn't find it particularly slow or boring. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff to discuss there, but I also think it's good film.
1: I mean, I think his point is a good one. Um, It's not really the way I think about Ready Player One specifically um yeah i wrote i wrote a thing for the washington post about uh west ready player one and in kind of the threat of human obsolescence and i just i think there's something interesting there i think ready player one is a very interesting cultural object we will look upon in different ways you know now and five years from now and ten years from now not just about Fan culture, uh, or things like that, but also about anticipating a world in which technology is is just superior to us. It's, it's outgrown us. It's, it's there's no necessary um, need for us in a way, I and mean, that's kind of the point of Westworld or her, for example, or Ready Player One. Is that the, is that you have this evolving world that is is superior to the one in which we actually live and uh, is getting better and smarter, and uh, I find that very uh, kind of an interesting place for science for science fiction to be right now so the film's resonant to me in that respect but i think it's it's correct the, the i think his general point is probably a good one
2: as far as what he says about like ready player one putting it all out there on screen and not like leaving you anything to sort of like think about or question mm-hmm. like i don't think that's true in the case of the the real world of ready player one and we talked about that mm-hmm. on that episode like it, there are a lot of sort of unanswered questions that you know, are arguably a detriment to the film in terms of like, you know, how do people work and live, you know, when they're not in the oasis? Like, we don't have.
3: Where do they go to the bathroom?
2: <laughs> exactly. These are the important things we need to see on film. But, you know, there's a lot of questions about the real world in Ready Player One that are, I think, interesting to discuss. And some of them are answered in the source material, too. But as far as like the actual world of the oasis, like, I think it's a lot like easier to make the argument that there's like not a lot to dig into there because it is all sort of reference based and just there, you know, there's not a lot of questions about what the Oasis looks like beyond what we see on the film, because we see a lot of it on the in the film.
0: I can see the feeling that there's less to discuss because there's more on the screen, but I also just feel that one of Ready Players One's big assets is that there's so much on the screen. I I like I would not want every film to be like this by a long shot, but as we continue to push the limits of how much incident and action and movement you can you can put onto the screen and still have it be parsable, uh, which is parsable? not a pun. <laughs> it's it's not a pun. Parsable. I tried to get there before nice. you did and I didn't. Like, I just, I think it's a really interesting sort of next step forward. I can't help but wonder, as films appeal more and more to an audience of people who grew up multitasking and trying to take in immense amounts of data at all times, if more and more films are going to look like this. Uh, But I think that in and of itself is something to discuss, even if we're not discussing the DeLorean or the Giant Giant or whatever on screen. That's a
1: good point. Actually, one point I don't think I got a chance to make in in the, uh, maybe I did, in in the original podcast was how I think that this film and and Tintin as well for Spielberg is him trying to figure out what to do aesthetically with where we're at in terms of computer generated worlds and, and effects and it, particularly just movement i mean the movement of of the camera in ready player one the, the through space and in the fact that that space is, is not you know it's not you're not on dolly tracks anymore you're you're literally float, flying around through the air and how do how how do you make that movement happen in a graceful and coherent and and uh, exciting way i think that's these are aesthetic questions that that spielberg was trying to to deal with in making the movie. So um, I kind of have some respect for him for that. Even though it's probably bottom five, Spielberg. But,
0: yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, I'm looking looking forward to seeing uh, where you where you place uh, Infinity War on, on uh, I think the inevitable great rankings of uh, MCU movies. <laughs> well, moving on. Um, one thing we said at one point that we were going to do when we were short on feedback was uh, spend a little time talking about the conversations we had about possible pairings, uh, both for the film that we're doing this week and just for films in general. We spent a lot of time, as it happened uh, this week, talking about which movie we should do because there are a lot of interesting things out right now. And when we settled on Infinity War, we spent a lot of time talking about which movie we should pair it with. Um, And in particular, we went uh, several rounds over whether to match it up with X-Men or with X2. Keith, you were the big proponent for X Men. Do you remember what, what your argument was? No,
3: my, I was I was more of a proponent for doing Superman. I, I really wanted to like come back to the beginning of what we now think of the modern sort of modern ish superhero movie to to uh, its most recent evolution. You know, I'm also very fond of Superman, the movie and the character and. Uh, in some ways, it's kind of the opposite of, of where Infinity War is, which is very focused on one character, or, um, see the, you know his, his origin, establishing his world. Or imagine seeing Infinity War and not having seen any previous Marvel films and what you would think of it. So I thought that would be an interesting comparison. Uh, I fought hard for it. I lost <laughs> How day, hard did you, you fight? You, I do you, you I mean, I,
0: don't I, you I, remember I don't It was like a four-day battle There was a lot of f- Getting smashed <laughs> Through the walls I, I, I think he actually Like flew backwards
2: Around the earth To like it's, turn it's, time it's back it's So true. that we could have The arguments some Talk more the best, part, that.
3: the best part of the <laughs> movie yes. I mean, It's yes. clearly, <laughs> clearly Not a violation Of everything That's been established That came oh, before love it. it doesn't move it. All stakes for anything ever Yes I, oh do, I do love the movie though. This is the best. Like
1: there is absolutely this is something I I, I take out all the time to to bother Keith is to talk about the part of the part in Superman 2 where he goes around the world. Uh, a super, Superman. Time. That's the first Superman. Actually. The fir- yeah. Excuse me. The fir- this There's a part of the, uh, Superman where he goes ar- around the earth a bunch of times so that Keith does not like that. This,
2: this is not the first time Keith has wanted to do Superman and we've we've talked to no oh, yeah. I, I think you wanted to do it for Wonder Woman I think it comes yeah. up pretty much every time we we talk about movie. a superhero movie. and like just to like kind of you know get into how the sausage is made we we run into this every time we want to do a a modern superhero movie of like what to pair it with you know mm-hmm. and sometimes it's a you know we come up with something unexpected and inspired like Paths of Glory and, and, and Wonder Woman <laughs> but you know a lot of the time it's times it's like well let's go back to the source and then figuring out what the source is in this case well, you know the
0: directors help us with that mm-hmm. we we look at a bunch of interviews that they've done and, and often they say well this was really inspired by or i spent a lot of time with or uh, i'm a huge fan of
1: and you're like oh yeah i see that i see that in there though, though it's really hard with the marvel films to to find pairings they're just so that template has been set, and and it's very hard to kind of like say, look at a new Marvel film and, and say, "Oh, wow, this is this is ripping off Herzog well, or whatever." Well, well,
2: and, and like we ran into that with Black Panther, mm-hmm. which we we discussed, we discussed our thought process behind not covering Black Panther on a previous feedback, and you know, in that case, Ryan Coogler, the director, had said like he had thrown out james bond as a reference mm-hmm. and i think one one other reference point but but neither of them were like particularly fruitful in terms of, of comparisons
3: like you know these there have been us going like it's kind of like that you're right
0: <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. and also yeah. like having when we were discussing that we hadn't seen the film and then we saw the film and we're like oh yeah there's that one scene that's very james bond hanging out with q but the rest of it as a whole not so much yeah. you, you
3: know what would have been good now that i think about it superman <laughs> 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 yeah.
0: <laughs> all right fine we will fly around the world several times rolling back time and we will do black panther and superman in the case of this pairing
2: i think i was the one who suggested either x-men or spider-man and that came entirely out of extra textual <laughs> reasons. <laughs> uh, so I'm surprised Scott didn't Im- immediately shoot it down. But just <laughs> in terms of Marvel having to sort of go all in on the Avengers f- because they had sold off the X-Men and Spider-Man. So that was sort of the seed for maybe doing X-Men. And then I we were going to do X-Men for a long time. And then I think Scott was like very adamant that like X2 is the better movie and we should do the better movie. And the more we talked about it, the more we were like, oh, well, it is a sequel. So that fits. And like, oh, there is a Max Extinction plot. So that fits. And it's just like, the more we talked about it, the more X2 made more sense in X-Men to the point that I can't even remember what the logic was for doing the original X-Men now.
0: Well, in part, it was the groundbreaking first team superhero blockbuster and sort of the weirdness of like jumping into a sequel i mean uh my argument was always it's got the it's got the mass genocide plot that just sort of made the most sense to me and then re-watching it and and seeing the team up thing like that it it just seems to have more of an internal logic as opposed to being a place in history parallel which i think is interesting to discuss but maybe not as rich conversationally sure Well, it feels like we may be able to shelve this conversation for a little while, but Aquaman's coming out this fall, and you know what would probably be (laughs) a really good pairing with it? Keith, do you have any ideas for that? <laughs>
3: um, I got to think about that one. I'll get back to you.
0: I mean, you know, lone lone hero who kind of comes from a, a world that is not his own and is sort of lost in this uh, in this outer world. Mm-hmm. Nothing's
1: coming immediately to mind. It's a I it's a DC thoughts.
0: Comics. Yeah. how
1: good of a swimmer is Superman? Yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, it's one of the best. I assume that he's super. He's pretty it. good. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that wraps up our feedback for this episode. We always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts, their recommendations, and anything else film related. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response in a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll bring in Avengers Infinity War, billed as the biggest crossover of all time, and we will ask ourselves, is it really that big? Actually, it kind of is.
1: Tasha, we've talked about this. Spoilers.
0: (laughs) Eh, Look for that later this week. Or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Find us at NextPictureShow.net, follow us at Facebook.com slash NextPictureShow, and follow us on Twitter at NextPicturePod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, if someone ever looks at you and says, someone so beautiful should not be so angry, keep in mind that getting angrier is a perfectly legitimate option. (laughs)